Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ore Okunbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. America, Russia, France, China, and Germany have long dominated the world's arms trade. But as geopolitical alliances shift, other countries are beefing up their weapons production and challenging the old guard. And the biggest names in boxing tend to get bogged down in pre-fight negotiations, so they don't meet as often as fans would like. To fill in the gap, a new kind of fight is becoming increasingly popular and attracting big sponsors too. First up, though. Ever since the military coup in late July that overthrew Niger's president, Mohamed Bazoum, things have looked dicey for French forces there. 1,500 troops are stationed in the country as part of France's wider anti-terrorist operations in Africa. The coup leaders wanted France out. Nigerians took to the street to demand the same. All the while, France's president, Emmanuel Macron, stood firm. That was until Sunday, when he announced the recall of France's ambassador and several diplomats from Niger. La France a décidé de ramener son ambassadeur, et donc dans les prochaines heures, notre ambassadeur. And that all military cooperation with the de facto authorities would end. Nous mettons fin à notre coopération militaire avec les autorités de fait du Niger, car elles ne veulent plus. The coup leaders declared it a historic moment for the country's sovereignty. But it figures into a wider historic moment as France recalculates its position on the African continent. Well, since the presidential guard overthrew President Bazoum and held him in the presidential palace, the coup leaders wanted France to get out, told them to take the soldiers out too. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. The French dug the heels in and said, we're staying until Bazoum is restored. But as time went by, it was increasingly clear that the coup leaders were not going to move. And in the end, Macron on Sunday announced an about turn and conceded that France was going to have to leave and all its troops were going to leave by the end of the year. And so why that sudden U-turn? Well, Macron's official explanation is that they are leaving because the new leadership, that is to say the military junta, no longer wants to fight against terrorism. And Macron has a point because even though the coup leaders said they took over wanting to restore stability in the country and fight the insecurity, problems of political violence. In fact, political violence has soared since they took power. 
But I think that this is about something much bigger. It's the French realising, and it's a painful realisation, that the junta was not going to budge. And that is despite the fact that the regional countries in the Sahel and Western Africa had threatened to intervene in order to restore the elected president. And Paris has had to concede, without explicitly saying so, that its policy there has failed and influence has effectively taken a very severe knock. You said what the coup leaders wanted. What about the people of Niger themselves? What do they reckon to all this? Well, it's difficult to know exactly what public opinion thinks, but certainly in the capital, Niamey, we've seen a lot of protests against the French presence. Both outside the French military base and in the capital more generally. People have made it very clear that they don't want the French in the country anymore. They want them out. And it seems like a snapshot of a feeling that you can see across the Sahel region, where France has other military bases. France has already had to leave Mali last year. And a lot of people in the region accuse the French of a sort of neocolonialist attitude and of occupying, in a sense, their countries by having this military presence. Well, what do you think of that charge, the idea then that it's neo-colonialist for France to have those bases in Africa? Well, I think it's important to remember the history and the context to the French presence. Back in 2013, it was the government of Mali that invited the French president to send troops to protect the capital from a jihadist incursion that was really threatening the integrity, the sovereignty of that country. And the French did manage to beat back that incursion. So at that time, it was a very popular military operation by France. But I mean, that was 10 years ago. And the problem is over time, the general picture has not actually improved, violence has spread. And there's a long shadow of suspicion about France because of its colonial past and partly because Russian propaganda has been extremely effective in whipping up anti-French feeling. You can see Russian flags that are being waved in the capital and France now is seen as the problem rather than the solution. So things have got significantly worse in recent years. And so now that France is on the way out, how do you think the situation will develop in particular with the jihadists? Well, it's difficult to see that the things are going to improve for people in Niger, even if they are happy to see the back of France in terms of political violence. It's already spread and surged since the junta took over. But I think there's a bigger picture here, and that is about President Macron, the French president's attempt to reset Africa-France relations. He came to power in 2017 in France, promising that he was of a different generation, that he wanted to build a partnership, not continue sort of a past policy of paternalism. He returned some artworks that had been held in French museums. In Rwanda, he asked forgiveness for France's role in the genocide in 1994. So there is, I think, an effort to turn things around, but the weight of history is just very difficult to push back against. And France's former colonial history means that I think in a, a lot of cases, it's just not held to the same standards as other outside powers, which are present in West Africa, such as Russia or China or Turkey. And so the French do find themselves bearing the brunt of criticism for anything they do, even if you compare France with America, which also maintains a drone base in Niger, but has really not come in for much criticism since the coup leaders took over. So now that France is on the way out of Niger, what about its wider presence in Africa? 
I think what's happened in Niger is going to prompt a really serious rethink for France. It does maintain four other military bases in Senegal, in Côte d'Ivoire, in Gabon, and then over on the Horn of Africa in Djibouti. I think that some of those will stay. The Djibouti base is very strategic for France. It's being a sort of pivot between Africa and the Indian Ocean. But I think that in other respects, the bases are going to have to be rethought or at least form a part of a new policy for France. It's had to leave Mali. It's had to leave Burkina Faso. It's now leaving Niger. This looks like a sort of domino effect for the country. And it's extremely difficult to see how France can maintain the bases in all the countries that they currently run. So I think it's a painful moment for France, difficult moment for the people of Niger, and will force President Macron to think very hard and long term about what France's military presence in Africa has to be going forward. And for the people of Niger, the likely consequence of this whole episode is that political violence will only get worse. Sophie, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. It's always a pleasure. Okay, so maybe you know this already, but I am contractually obliged to remind you we're making some changes around here. Next month, we're launching our new subscription plan called Economist Podcasts Plus. Don't worry, everyone will still be able to listen to these weekday episodes of The Intelligence. But to enjoy our full panoply of podcasts, including our specialist weekly shows like Babbage, Money Talks, and Drum Tower, and our incredibly exciting new show, The Weekend Intelligence, you're going to need to sign up. If you're already an Economist subscriber, great, and thanks, you're already in. If you're not, listen up. Sign up for Economist Podcasts Plus before October 17th, and you'll get a year-long subscription for just $2, or £2 or €2 a month. That's half price. If you love a deal as much as I do, click the link in the show notes to learn more. Korea regularly flexes its muscles by parading its armed forces through the capital, Pyongyang. But today, its southern neighbours were the ones on show. For the first time in 10 years, South Korea's Armed Forces Day featured a grand military procession. Nearly 7,000 troops marched through the streets of Seoul. And tanks, missiles and the country's first domestically developed fighter, the KF-21, were all on display. The show of force will serve as a warning against aggression from the North. But it may also function as an advert for a flourishing arms industry. We saw in mid-September the strange sights of North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un meeting President Putin to discuss an arms deal, a reflection of the difficulties that Russia is having sourcing weapons from anywhere else. Matthew Simmons writes about defence for The Economist. But it would be misleading to think that North Korea is an important player in what is a global arms market. This is a market which is still dominated by five big sellers, America, Russia, France, China and Germany. However, the combination of the Ukraine war and changes in geopolitics are giving opportunities to some interesting new players, South Korea and Turkey. 
So let's start with South Korea. How are they changing the global arms market? Well, South Korea is the standard example. In the last year, it sold arms worth $17 billion, more than twice as much as the previous year. And of that, some $14.5 billion came from sales to Poland. And what we see with South Korean industry is that it can deliver a range of high-quality arms at relatively low prices and at speed. One of the reasons that they can do this is that they run their production lines very hot, much more so than you know Europe or America, which means that they can also ramp up to almost kind of any demand very quickly. And what about Turkey? How have they built out their industry? In the four-year period between 2018 and 2022, their weapons exports increased by 69% compared with the previous period. And a good example of that is the success they've had selling drones. In July, it signed a $3 billion agreement with Saudi Arabia to supply a very high-tech unmanned combat aerial vehicle called the Akinki. And it has really sort of made its mark in this market by taking sales away from the Chinese. And how much has the war in Ukraine changed the global arms industry? Well, it's changed it in a number of different ways. I mean, first of all, it's provided opportunities for players like South Korea, who have backfilled some of the depleted arsenals from Europe. It's also, as a result of that, had this huge deal with Poland, which is really sort of jaw-dropping in size. It includes 1,000 tanks, 670 self-propelled howitzers, 48 fourth-generation fighter jets, one of the biggest arms deals for a very long time. And that's because Poland sees itself very much as a frontline state, and they are doing everything that they can to really become the most potent sort of land army on the European continent. The other factor in all of this, as far as Ukraine is concerned, is that for Russia, it has hit hard their ability to be an arms exporter. You know, Russia's traditionally been the third or fourth biggest arms exporter in the world. I think that the longer the war lasts, it will go further and further down that sort of league table, as it seemed to be a kind of unreliable exporter. But Matthew, Russia is only one of the legacy big five. How are the others faring? The ones who are doing okay are the US, France and Germany. And Germany may actually do better as a result of the Ukraine war because some of its sort of regulations constraining exports have already been eased a bit and it's extremely productive industry may be able to take advantage of that. The other one that has sort of gone down, though, is China. And that's not directly related to the Ukraine war. It's more to do with how China is seen in its own neighbourhood. China really only has one major arms customer, which is Pakistan. Over half its exports in the last four or five years went to Pakistan. It's tried to sell to other countries in Southeast Asia, but there's not much interest. You know, Myanmar is buying a bit, 
Thailand may do a submarine deal with it. But other countries in the region are so tired of Chinese bullying that they don't want to touch it as a source of arms. So that's going to be a problem for it. The combination of the way it's seen in its own region and the sense that a lot of its products are relatively low quality. And so, Matthew, where do you see the global arms trade going in the years ahead? I think Russia will continue to decline. I think China will probably decline as well. But I think that the big winner overall is likely to be South Korea. It's shown that it can deliver what people want very quickly. And their goal is to become the fourth largest arms exporter within four years. And at the rate they're going, I think that's probably achievable. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. Ladies and gentlemen, live online around the world and live here. In 2018, two British YouTubers got into a disagreement. Mike Jakeman writes about sport for The Economist. One of them, KSI, whose real name is Oloji Dolatunji, became famous for posting videos of himself playing FIFA. He got into some online beef with another British YouTuber, whose name is Joe Weller. And the two agreed to settle their differences through an exhibition boxing match. And he does draw! And he lands again! And he's making a fight out of it! This is a fight! JJ's on the back foot! They're not fighters. They spend a little bit of time training. But because they're so popular on YouTube and they have thousands of people who watch their videos, there was actual genuine real-life interest in watching them trying to have a fight. And they duly sold out the Copper Box Arena in London and... Absurdly, to my mind, more than 23 million people have subsequently watched the video of the two of these guys having their boxing match. Ladies and gentlemen, your fighters, KSI, Joe Weller. Well done, lads. At the end of this fight, which was won by KSI, the FIFA guy, he actually called out two American YouTubers, brothers called Logan and Jake Paul, who at the time posted videos of themselves doing pranks and jackass-type stunts, who themselves have enormous audiences. KSI then fought Logan in Manchester, which was an even bigger event. And suddenly, real boxing promoters realised that there was something in this and that people genuinely cared. But this shouldn't bother professional boxers, should it? Well, quite clearly it shouldn't, because these guys are amateurs, they're not trained fighters, they haven't got any particular sporting pedigree, whereas boxing 
is an enormous sport that should quite clearly be able to kind of renew itself. At the very top end of the sport, there are four really compelling and also quite flawed heavyweight boxers who, in theory, should be able to carry the sport on their backs. The problem is they haven't actually done very much fighting recently. So, for example, Tyson Fury, a Brit, has only fought once in the last 18 months. Deontay Wilder from America has fought once in the last year, and that fight lasted a single round. Anthony Joshua, another Brit, he has fought recently, but again, that fight had to be rearranged at the last minute because his planned opponent failed a drugs test. And then I guess the man at the, the very peak of the sport, Ukrainian Alexander Usk, he's only boxed 45 rounds this decade. So the problem is these guys are all here and there's a huge demand, I think, to watch them fight, but they're just not getting in the ring. I mean, it's always been difficult to arrange fights because everybody has different management and TV networks have different relationships with different fighters. And ultimately, when they get together, nobody wants to be seen as second rate or to have lost a negotiation. And these things go from the very important stuff about who's going to earn most money down to the really petty stuff like who's going to come into the ring first and how long they get to do their ring walk and all this kind of stuff. And all this has kind of got in the way of actually the fights ever taking place. So these guys aren't really boxing anymore, but influencers are. Yes, there's no doubt that influencers are starting to fill a bit of a gap in the market. And crucially, the line between influencer amateur boxing and the real thing has become increasingly blurred. That's partly because professional promoters have got involved and they've started marketing these fights properly, selling them to the kind of TV networks where you expect to see professional boxing. Most of these influencer fights are technically professional because the promoters have been able to get these fights sanctioned by official bodies. And because they've got such big audiences, they're taking over some of the space occupied by boxing. So for example, genuine professional world champion boxers such as Billy Joe Saunders, have actually found themselves defending their real-world titles on the undercard of influencer fights. The whole world has kind of turned upside down in about three years. So where does this leave the future of boxing? I think this depends pretty much entirely on how the elite professional boxers and their promoters respond. If we get more inertia from them, then I think the influencer trend will continue to grow. Meanwhile, of course, the influencers themselves are becoming more and more like the professional boxers. And this blurring of who's a real fighter and who's an amateur pretending to be a fighter will continue to get even blurrier still. The frustrating thing for boxing aficionados is that there's clearly huge demand for boxing fights. You know, if there wasn't, then this influencer trend would never have happened. But the problem is that the boxers themselves aren't giving fans what they really want. We still don't know when Alexander Usk is next going to get in the ring, but we do know that KSI, Logan and Jake Paul are all in negotiations for their next fights, or they're already arranged. In the meantime, we'll see more and more influencer fights, but nothing from the professional boxers. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Don't forget, Economist Podcasts Plus launches next month, and if you're not already a subscriber, you'll need to sign up to listen to all of our offerings. Get you that sweet, sweet half-price deal by following the link in the show notes. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. 
IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.